From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the price of oil falls, energy companies are souring on Canadian tar sands oil, and getting it to market is part of the problem. It costs about $25 per barrel to move tar sands crude from Alberta by, by rail uh, to the Gulf of Mexico. If they had a pipeline, say something like the Keystone XL pipeline, they could cut that price from $25 down to $9. That's a huge difference. It all puts tar sands mining in doubt. Also an unlikely musical duo, a clarinet and a whale. This is a kind of surprising moment where the whale showed some interest. And so at that moment you feel like, oh, maybe something's going on here. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a sense of getting through to another species through music. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The price of oil has been plummeting, down some 25% since June, and as we record this show, the price per barrel is near $80. Motorists and freight haulers see this as good news, but cheap oil encourages consumption, And over the long term, that's not such good news when it comes to cutting global warming gas emissions. Still, opponents of the proposed Keystone XL pipeline to carry tar sands oil to market from Alberta, Canada, are seeing a benefit from the slump in oil prices, which makes it harder to make a profit. Uncertainty over Keystone and questionable returns recently prompted the Norwegian oil giant Statoil to halt its tar sands plans. Brian Palmer, a writer for On Earth magazine, has been following these developments. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me, Steve. Uh, Brian, tell me, why did Statoil pull out of tar sands? Uh, well, there's the kind of corporate press release, and then there are the, kind of a, the, a lot of reasons uh, kind of behind it. They did specifically mention kind of changing marketing, market conditions and limited pipeline access. And, and what limited pipeline access means in corporate speak is the lack of the Keystone pipeline. The Keystone XL pipeline is kind of crucial to tar sands projects in northern Alberta becoming profitable. Well, but the Keystone is still on the table. It hasn't been taken completely off the table. That's true, but they need to do their their long-term planning. As of a couple of years ago, I think most of the energy executives thought of the Keystone pipeline as kind of something that had been postponed for political reasons, but once kind of we got out of election season to the extent we have a non-election season anymore, it would be approved and we would kind of move forward uh, no matter who is in the White House. But environmentalists have been so successful in postponing it that a lot of oil companies are now worried that it's just never going to happen. And if it's never going to happen, um, making a long-term commitment to a tar sands project is a kind of an iffy proposition. Now, we're, we're in the middle of a precipitous uh, decline in the price of crude oil. As we're recording this, the price of crude is down around $81 a barrel. How does that impact the viability of tar sands oil? Um, So to understand this, you need a bit of background. Um, Tar sands oil is a kind of a cheap, low-quality version of crude oil that that comes from a a very specific and remote location. Extracting tar sands is nothing like drilling for oil. It's much more like uh, mining. So you need to move huge amounts of equipment out there to get the tar sands out of the ground. You need more equipment to separate the bitumen, which is the the, the stuff that actually makes oil from the sand and the clay that it's stuck in. And then you need even more equipment to kind of cook that down and turn it into something that vaguely resembles crude oil. When all of that is done, you still have to get the stuff to a refinery. 
there are limited places that are, ref- that are refining oil in North America right now. The two best places to ship crude oil from Alberta are probably the uh, upper Midwest in the United States and the Gulf of Mexico. And getting it there is a challenge. As of right now, it costs about $25 per barrel to move tar sands crude from Alberta by, by rail uh, to the Gulf of Mexico. If they had a pipeline, say something like the Keystone XL pipeline, they could cut that price from $25 down to $9. That's a huge difference. Now, because tar sands, as I mentioned, is a, is a much lower quality version of oil, uh, of crude oil, it sells at a discount, something like $20 to $30 less than conventional crude. So with um, conventional crude in the 80s, tar sands crude more like in the 60s, maybe even a little bit less than that. If you can only get something like $60 to $65 for your barrel of oil, having to pitch in an extra $15 to $20 to move it by rail rather than pipeline will turn a kind of marginally profitable business into a completely unprofitable business. And uh, that's scaring uh, oil producers off of tar sands projects right now. So this delay then on the Keystone XL pipeline decision from President Obama is essentially uh, making the difference to the economies of this industry up in Alberta. Yeah, I mean, there are several factors. As you mentioned, the price of oil has dropped. Uh, the cost of labor has risen um, because Alberta, northern Alberta is like the kind of place that John Denver sang about. It is very, very remote. Getting people to move there costs money. And when you want to expand, and you're trying to convince more and more people who are not that enthusiastic about move, moving there to go. You need to offer them higher and higher salaries. So labor costs are going up. So there are a variety of factors, but there's great evidence to support the idea that the Keystone Pipeline is the kind of the difference between having new tar sands projects and not having new tar sands projects. Now, there's been a debate about just how important Keystone XL uh, Pipeline is to getting at the tar sands. Uh, the folks uh, who are opposed to Keystone say it's essential. Industry says that the oil is going to get to port either way. Uh, how do you think the Stott Oil decision influences that debate? Well, so the Statoil decision is just one of many. Shell has canceled projects recently. Uh, the French energy company Total, uh, Suncor Energy of Canada, they've all killed tar sands projects in the last year, and those cancellations have cost billions of dollars. Um, what they're looking at is, is not kind of the current state of things. They're looking into the future. There was an article in Politico quoting a lot of energy executives talking about how the delays in Keystone are sort of irrelevant, quoting a lot of numbers about how much uh, Canadian oil is coming into the United States. But the issue is not... Uh, expansion up until now. Uh, It's future expansion. So think of tar sands projects as being something like a freight train. You know, it takes a lot of work to get one going, but once they're going, it's very hard to stop them. Once you've put, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into starting a tar sands mine, you're not going to shut it down because you've already put the money in. The problem is building new mines. If you're going to invest lots and lots of money and you're an oil executive and and you want to invest in a project that's going to take 30 years, but you have no reason to believe it's ever going to become profitable because you don't have a pipeline, that's going to scare you off, and you're going to have a, you're going to have a hard time convincing your shareholders that's a good idea. So these other, pipe, these other kind of alternatives, rail is a terrible alternative. They want to expand another pipeline called the Alberta Clipper. That's encountering resistance. That's going nowhere. They just don't have a lot of options right now. They have barely have enough to handle the, the tar sand oil they have. And the idea of expanding the industry just it seems like a complete non-starter right now. So it um, looks like the Harper government is pushing to convert uh, an existing gas pipeline uh, mm. that goes east across nearly every province in Canada to take oil from Alberta, to take that tar sands oil to refineries. Um, what do you make of that? So the Energy East pipeline is sort of the, 
Canadian version of, uh, of Keystone XL. And it's getting the same reaction in Canada that Keystone XL got in the United States. Once it became a serious issue, um, lots of Canadian environmental groups started uh, r- raising a fuss about it for good reason. Yeah, we saw that, uh, I mean, the Montreal Gazette uh, reported that, uh, that some 2,000 people showed up in a town of 2,000 to protest the Energy East uh, pipeline. doesn't seem like it's terribly uh, uh, popular in Quebec anyway. That's pretty good turnout, I'd say. So how, how, how concerned are the shareholders of these major companies that these delays uh, are going to go on forever? That's a good question. I think that what the, the kind of flurry of articles we're seeing recently talking about how Keystone is, is no longer that important to oil companies is an indication of worry in the boardrooms. If you own stock in an, an oil company that invests in tar sands and has an existing project and you see all these cancellations, you're starting to think, why are we so heavily invested in tar sands when no one else wants to get into this business? And so I think what may be going on with a lot of these new articles and energy executives kind of confidently talking about new pipeline access like Energy East or Alberta Clipper or other pipelines, that what's going on is that's a message they're sending to their shareholders saying, don't worry, there's going to be pipeline access. This isn't, we're not throwing money down you know, into a pit, quite literally. Um, we're, we're, this is going to work out in the end. You just, have to, you just have to stick with us through this and we'll make sure everything is okay. And they are speaking the truth? <laughs> Only time will tell. It doesn't look good right now if, if things continue as they are. Brian Palmer is a writer for On Earth Magazine, publication of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Thanks for having me, Steve. The states of Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and Colorado come together at four corners. And that is where NASA says there's a huge spike in emissions of the powerful greenhouse gas, methane. NASA and University of Michigan scientists analyzed satellite data from 2003 to 2009, and a map of their results shows a bright red spot at the four corners, which is most likely related to coal bed methane extraction there as it predates the boom in shale gas fracking. The satellite methane numbers are much higher than EPA estimates that rely on data from towers and airplanes. Christian Frankenberg is a research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena and a co-author of the new study, which was published in Geophysical Research Letters. Christian Frankenberg, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me here. So to start, how did you gather this data? We collected it from a European satellite called Skiamaki. In the paper, we looked at data from 2003 to 2009. Now, what's the technology that the satellite uses to, to detect methane? It uses a technique called absorption spectroscopy. We are recording spectra for methane around the 1.6 micron spectral range, which is not in the visible anymore, so the human eye can't see it. Skiomaki records about more than 8,000 spectral points. So if you imagine your eye is basically only seeing three different colors, the satellite is recording more than 8,000 different colors. And with that fine spectral resolution, we can detect basically fingerprints of atmospheric trace gases in the atmosphere And we use these absorptions of methane to derive the methane quantities that we have in the field of view of the satellite. What do you suspect is the source of this methane hotspot that's observed there in the Four Corners area of the U.S.? So in principle, we can only observe the effect of emissions. We can't really, with 100% certainty, talk about the source itself. But this is a region where uh, coal bed methane extraction is really big. It's one of the biggest extraction areas in the U.S., And this is the most likely source, I would say, right now. So your study looks at the satellite data from 2003 to 2009, but fracking, which uh, people are very concerned about now for uh, methane leaks, 
has gone through a significant boom in the last few years. Uh, what does your data say uh, since then? We only looked particularly at this Four corner site, and we observe the, the enhancements already starting in 2003. And at that time, there was no considerable fracking activity in this area. It's, it's an established technique in the Four Corners area to extract the coal bed methane, and I think it started already in the 90s. So, and um, our main message is that we should not only focus on the new techniques like fracking, but keep the whole energy sector in view and not forget about those that already emit since a long time, but they just get swept under the carpet now because all the focus is on fracking. Now, the data that you observed, what percentage of methane emissions in the U.S. does this hotspot represent? In the paper, we compared it against the U.S. total estimate for natural gas emissions, which are around 7 teragrams. And of this, the 0.59 teragrams that we observed would be almost 10% of it. So what's the value of locating this methane hotspot through remote sensing? How does it help us find and fix the source? I think one of the biggest advantages of satellite data like this is indeed in locating potential hotspots or problem areas where you might follow up with more dedicated ground-based studies to see the source afterwards. Each footprint of the Skiamaki satellite is about 60 by 30 kilometers, so we can't really go any finer than the spatial resolution of the satellite, and this is what we are restricted with right now. Where else in the world are you seeing hotspots? Oh, there are many, many others. Um, the most prominent feature that we observe is typically the rice paddy season in Asia because it's, it's a large emission occurring over a relatively short time period. It's focused on about two to three months of the year. And in this area, there are about 30 teragrams of methane being emitted from rice paddies. It's mostly the microbes that live anaerobically in the soil, and then the rice plant itself is just a mediator of the emissions. So, Christian, in general, how does satellite data compare to ground monitoring? What are the advantages and disadvantages? The advantages are that you basically have a single instrument that measures around the globe. So all the intercalibration issues are a little easier if you do it from space. You also have full global coverage. You might measure in regions where, be it for political reasons, be it for monetary reasons, be it for safety reasons, you can't really go there. So you cover those areas as well. On the other hand, since it is remote sensing, it will never be as accurate as in situ measurements, which are basically just measuring at the point where you do your ground-based measurements. These are very, very accurate and uh, will always be needed, but they can't do that on the whole globe. Christian Frankenberg studies remote sensing of atmospheric gases at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Nice talking to you. Coming up, politics and power plant emissions in Pennsylvania. That's just ahead. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For more than a decade, a group of northeastern states has conducted a cap-and-trade program for power plant emissions known as REGI, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, that's said to have saved billions of dollars and slashed millions of tons of CO2 emissions. Now, as power plant operators across America consider new rules expected from the EPA next year, States, including Pennsylvania, are thinking about joining Reggie. 
But that decision likely depends on the November election, with incumbent Republican Tom Corbett and Democratic contender Tom Wolfe on opposing sides. Julie Grant of the public radio program The Allegheny Front has the story. Under President Obama's clean power plan, Pennsylvania would have to cut its carbon dioxide emissions more than 30 percent by 2030. If Democratic candidate Tom Wolf is elected governor, he says he would join the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, also known as REGGIE. I want to be part of any compact that's trying to, to make our air cleaner, and I think REGGIE tries to do that. REGGIE is an agreement between nine northeastern states to voluntarily reduce the amount of carbon dioxide coming from electricity generation through a cap-and-trade type program. Adam Garber is with the advocacy group Penn Environment. He says Pennsylvania could use REGGIE as a way to meet the EPA mandates. By joining an existing framework, it's going to be easier for Pennsylvania to show that it's meeting these standards. Garber says Pennsylvanians are ready for this kind of action, as witnessed at the recent U.N. climate summit. And I think after you see 400,000 people march in New York City, including thousands of Pennsylvanians, it's very clear what people in the state want, which is a, a world not threatened by climate change, a world where we're getting more energy from renewables like solar and wind. You know, I think the political will and the people will is there, and it's a question of the politics. Reggie was first proposed by a Republican, former New York Governor George Pataki. New York, Vermont, Connecticut, and others voluntarily agreed to cap the emissions of carbon dioxide coming from the electricity sector. Any plant that generates 25 megawatts or more of electricity in Reggie states must purchase one allowance for each ton of carbon dioxide it emits. The allowances are sold at quarterly auctions. Proceeds go toward energy efficiency and clean energy programs and to lower consumers' energy bills in member states. But as the politics of climate change heated up, conservatives vilified cap-and-trade programs. In 2011, Republican New Jersey governor and possible presidential contender Chris Christie pulled his state out of REGGIE. REGGIE does nothing more than tax electricity, tax our citizens, tax our businesses, with no discernible or measurable impact upon our environment. So we will withdraw from REGGIE in an orderly fashion by year's end. Christie said New Jersey electricity generators were at a competitive disadvantage because Pennsylvania coal plants didn't have to pay for Reggie's carbon allowances. But in the three years since, environmentalists say exiting Reggie cost New Jersey $114 million for clean energy projects. Reggie says proceeds in 2012, the latest available numbers for all its members combined, were expected to return more than $2 billion to ratepayer bills while offsetting 8 million tons of carbon dioxide. But Governor Corbett's energy executive, Patrick Henderson, says Pennsylvania is in a whole different ballgame. The state has many more coal-fired power plants, produces much more power, and emits more carbon dioxide than the current Reggie states. Pennsylvania compared to those states is an absolute anomaly. Several of those states don't even have a single coal-fired power plant at all. Pennsylvania, on the other hand, is one of the nation's top energy producers and exporters of electricity to other states. That's why the EPA's plan to cut carbon emissions has Pennsylvania's coal industry worried. Workers from coal plants and mines concerned about their jobs rallied in Pittsburgh last month to stop what they call the war on coal. Coal! Henderson says the new federal regulations might force some coal plants to close. He says the Reggie standards are even tougher than the federal rules, and joining could overburden Pennsylvania's coal plants. 
But Democrat Tom Wolf says Pennsylvania could negotiate a fair deal with Reggie. Uh, it's basically exercising leadership, yeah. The proposed federal rules require each state to have a final plan in place in 2017. If they work with other states in a regional compact like Reggie, they get an extra year to comply. I'm Julie Grant. Julie Grant reports for the public radio program, The Allegheny Front. We invited Governor Corbett to explain his views on Reggie, but he declined. And now we turn to our guide to the world beyond the headlines, Peter Dykstra. He's also the publisher of dailyclimate.org and environmental health news, that's ehn.org. He joins us now on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. What stories did you find today? Hi, Steve. Uh, Let's start north of the border this week. Canada has taken a lot of heat in recent years for the perception that it's turned a deaf ear to environmental concerns, but their latest harsh critic is a little bit surprising. Yeah, the Canadian government's done an about-face on climate change, what with pulling out of Kyoto. They've made deep cuts in scientific research and quite a bit more, but uh, who's their latest critic? The Canadian government's latest critic would be the Canadian government, Steve. There's a scathing report from the Commissioner of the Environment and Sustainable Development. She doesn't run the Environment Ministry, but serves as a watchdog. And she says that Canada's well on its way to failing to meet its promises for fighting climate change, reducing emissions, protecting the melting Arctic, and for monitoring at its controversial tar sands projects. And earlier in the show, we reported that some corporations are pulling out of the tar sands, but an internal government spanking, too? This scathing report, uh, does it have any teeth, or can the Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper just brush it off? Well, the Environment Ministry is required to respond to this scathing report, and the commissioner who wrote said scathing report answers to Parliament, not the Prime Minister. The contents of the report might make for some debating points, but not necessarily big changes. Hmm. So uh, what else do you have for us this week? have a tale of two economic analyses. Like most of the West, the snowpack and rainfall in Colorado has been a little funky for the past few years, and water's a big deal for the state's economy, including everyone from ranchers to rafters. And agriculture wants to take water out of the rivers, tourism wants to leave it in, and the state's new water plan took the first step of putting an actual price tag on Colorado's river economy, so at least they know how much money they're fighting over, and that amount is 9 billion dollars. Yeah, you're talking literally about a lot of cash flow. Right, but not nearly as much as in the Chesapeake Bay. A report from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation estimates that the proposed massive cleanup plan for the bay will cost about five to six billion dollars a year, but the cleanup could yield as much as a hundred and twenty-nine billion a year in benefits like storm protection, increased seafood production, tourism, and cleaner water. That's certainly a familiar environmental theme. If you spend money wisely, you get a big payback. Time now for us to check out the environmental calendar. What did you bring us from the history calendar this week? Well, happy 75th birthday to the nylon stocking. Uh, In the early 20th century, the DuPont Company, one of the nation's oldest makers of gunpowder, diversified into the chemical giant we know today, and some of their biggest labs focused on developing synthetic fabrics. They called their big breakthrough back in 1935 Fabric 66 and immediately set out to deploy the secret weapon to replace silk stockings. At first, they called it CLIS, K-L-I-S, which is silk spelled backwards. Then they hit upon the notion that these new stockings didn't run as often as silk stockings, so they called the fabric no run, and that got corrupted into the word nylon, and in October 1939, they rolled out their nylon stockings in every department store in DuPont's Wilmington, Delaware hometown, where eager ladies lined up around the block to buy them. Hey, Peter, you do remember that this is an environmental show, and uh, I appreciate your enthusiasm about nylon and DuPont getting a leg up, but where are we going with this? 
Well, the world didn't just go ape over nylon stockings. This was a high watermark in our embrace of manufacturing and chemistry toward a better way of life. When nylon showed up at the New York World's Fair the next spring in 1940, and then they launched nationwide, they sold 4 million pairs of nylon stockings in four days, and it was on. DuPont called it better living through chemistry. Their rivals at Monsanto reminded us that without chemicals, life itself would be impossible. And of course, these things made life a lot better, or at least a lot easier, to grow more food, clean the house, kill mosquitoes, and much, much more. But at a big environmental price. Absolutely, a big price to rivers and air, soil, wildlife, and to our own bodies through pollution. But the notion of green chemistry is now beginning to be embraced even by companies like Dow and DuPont and Monsanto, using talents in the lab to do good without doing harm. And it brings hope that it will really bring better and cleaner living through chemistry. Hey, Peter, we're out of time. I guess i got to run. Uh. <laughs> Peter Dykstra is publisher of Environmental Health News at ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Thanks so much, Peter. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. At 200 tons, the blue whale is the largest animal known to have inhabited the Earth. But it was hunted to near extinction back in the days of whaling. Thanks to a moratorium on whaling that began in the mid-'80s, the blues and other whales have been coming back, although very slowly. But the moratorium does allow whaling for the purposes of research. And in the name of science, the Japanese have killed thousands of whales in recent decades. Philip Clapham directs whale research at NOAA's National Marine Mammal Laboratory in Seattle. We called him to discuss Japan's whaling research program. Since the moratorium, Japan has uh, killed a large number of whales. Um, it claims that's necessary research. Uh, that's important for the management of whaling. Uh, Many of us believe it is simply a convenient way around the moratorium. So what exactly are the research whaling programs that Japan has? You say they have killed thousands of whales under this program. Since 1987, they've killed more than 14,000 whales under this program. And the program actually exists in two places, in the Antarctic. And uh, there's a parallel program in the North Pacific. Uh, There is really very little the Japanese are doing that is of direct relevance to the management of whales. And even if it is, uh, nowadays there are so many non-lethal techniques which are as good or in many cases better than the technique of killing a whale to study it. What types of whales are being taken? Uh, Primarily, it's a small whale called the minke whale, uh, which is the smallest of the so-called large whales. There are also, uh, in the North Pacific mostly, some other whales being taken, sperm whales, uh, a few sperm whales, brutus whales, sci whales, uh, which are much bigger whales. Now, as I understand it, the International Court of Justice recently made a finding about Japan's research uh, whaling programs uh, that would require Japan to stop that. Well, yes and no. The the ICJ decision was was very interesting. It happened in March this year, and Australia, actually, and New Zealand uh, took Japan to the, the Court of Justice. And they claimed that the scientific whaling that Japan was doing was actually not for the purposes of scientific research. So what the court did was to look at a number of factors, uh, the scale of the Japanese catch in the Antarctic, uh, the way that they calculated the sample sizes, uh, the number of animals they'd actually killed relative to the sample size, what the time frame and the publication record was, and how well uh, they had coordinated with other research programs. And the court, after looking at all this, uh, came out and said that actually, no, it wasn't for the purposes of scientific research, and therefore Japan had violated that article, Article 8 of the Convention. 
Um, so what the court then did was to say, uh, you must uh, basically cancel and revoke any permits for this particular program, which was in the Antarctic, and not an issue any more. It didn't, however, affect the North Pacific program. And um, many people at the time were very optimistic about this. They thought that this would be a way for Japan to uh, cancel its Antarctic whaling operation finally, and maybe it would actually extend to the North Pacific. But uh, as we've seen in subsequent months, none of that has happened. So Japan is still in the Antarctic and in the North Pacific. Yeah, they continue the North Pacific program this summer, albeit with a somewhat a smaller catch. And they've announced their intention to submit a new proposal to the Whaling Commission. And no matter what criticism they get of that proposal, uh, they will say that it is in keeping with the ICJ judgment and they'll go ahead and start whaling again uh, starting in late 2015 back in the Antarctic. Why did the Japanese take so many whales and then uh, use so little of it? I gather there's quite a bit in cold storage at this point. Yeah, it's a complicated question. So that it's a question actually really at a couple of levels. So the research in Japan is conducted by a sort of quasi-governmental organization called the Institute of Cetacean Research in Tokyo, which, or ICR. And uh, ICR is funded by uh, government subsidies and also by the sale of the meat in Japanese markets. So there is a very strong incentive to continue whaling because essentially if whaling stops, then that institution goes out of business. Um, there's also uh, the larger issue of the Japanese regard whaling as, as really a slippery slope. If they give in on whaling, then perhaps they're going to have to give in on other fisheries issues too. And uh, fish, as you know, is a major part of Japanese culture. Uh, Japan is a huge consumer of seafood. And so I think they're really concerned that if they give in on whaling, then uh, bluefin tuna or something else that they depend upon may be next. Now, in terms of fishing, some Japanese uh, folks say that, look, uh, you need to limit the number of whales because they eat fish. And, of course, we want to have fish. What does your research tell you? It's really a ridiculous argument. I mean, first of all, many of the big whales don't eat fish at all. In fact, the, the largest biomass of the world's baleen whales live in the southern hemisphere, and they uh, consume primarily krill there. You know, you need to consider that the size of many whale populations today are at a small fraction of what their levels were in pre-whaling times when commercial fish populations were considerably larger and much healthier than they are today. Um, there's a lot of other issues in this as well. You know, human overfishing clearly is the cause of the precipitous decline of commercial fish stocks uh, worldwide. It isn't really uh, whales. And in fact, there's been some recent studies that have suggested that, um, to put it bluntly, through defecation, um, whales uh, contribute uh, really invaluable nutrients in large quantities to the marine environment and in doing so stimulate primary production, which is the, the base of the whole food chain. Uh, Phil, before you go, uh, bring us up to date on just how the whales are doing around the planet. Well, it depends on which species you're talking about. Actually, I'm, I'm happy to say that, that many whales are doing very well. In the 20th century, uh, when industrial whaling really kicked into gear, Two million whales were killed in just the southern hemisphere alone, most of those in the Antarctic, and there were uh, several hundred thousand were killed in the northern hemisphere also. And we reduced populations of whales in some cases to well below 1% of what their original pre-whaling numbers were. There were 369,000 blue whales killed in the 20th century. Today, there are probably a couple of thousand left in the Antarctic, so less than 1% of the original. Uh, there were actually almost three-quarters of a million fin whales killed. Um, but fortunately, many of those species are coming back now. Um, humpback whales, for example, 
They have uh, come back remarkably well in most places. There are an estimated 20,000 in the North Pacific right now, uh, probably around 10 to 15,000 in the North Atlantic. And uh, they seem to be doing very well without human interference. They're very resilient. Philip Clapham directs whale research for the National Marine Mammal Laboratory of NOAA in Seattle. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you for having me. Coming up, we stick with whales for a musical duet and play along with Nightingale. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Humpback whales are found in every ocean, and so is the roar of human activity. But there's calm at the Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary off Massachusetts, where writer Mark Seth Lender encountered a humpback and her calf. Wide of the planet, humpback whale goes and dives and rises up to feed, rolling upon her fins, the fishes leaping from the black baleen in the cavern of her mouth. And when she roves, her flukes footprint the water like the heel of a giant ocean striding. And when she breaches, broad jumping high and long, the sea rumbles like kettle drums when she falls down. And when her water breaks and the life she bears is born, the tides rise higher on the distant shore. The ragged sheets of rain weaving the spiny sea when the waves roar, the smooth cloth of the sea in calm, the ruffled blanket of the sea in steady wind, these are the weather's whale nose, all these and more. In the gray of the deep no color shines, sound rules over the eyes, the touch of currents is the only wind against your face and water the only air. Where cold inclines and warm subsides and water falls within water, there humpback glides and speaks and listens for the voices of her kind through the unaccustomed, the invidious clamor. She surfaces for silence and for sleep. Whale and the baby born to her in the winter of the year doze and drift on a soft bower of water. Their eyelids droop and close. They are so still, cradled in the calm before the storm. And when they draw and blow, their breath becomes whale bows, violet, crimson, sintered green. It vanishes as quickly as it blooms. And when they sound fathoms and fathoms below, the water like fresh blue paint covers over the place where they have been. And when they race like a miller's wheel, head then back then tail, great currents are moved upon their way. And when they look at you, they see you. The whale feels. The whale breathes. The young whale, born tethered to his mother by the hawser of the cord, like all of us, bound to the fate of the sea. 
As the sea goes, so goes the whale. As the whale goes, so goes life on Earth. Writer Mark Seth Lender has pictures of the humpback and her calf at our website, LOE.org. David Rothenberg is a philosopher and musician who likes to collaborate when he plays his clarinet, as here in this track from his latest CD, Cicada Dream Band, which features birds, bugs, and whales. Now, biologists tell us that creatures sing or call or howl for a reason, to mark their territory, to warn of danger, or to attract potential mates. But David Rothenberg, who's a professor at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, thinks that some animals sing simply for the joy of it. And that's why he likes to play along with them. Professor Rothenberg joins us now from Cold Springs, New York. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks so much for inviting me. So growing up, what was your personal interaction with nature and its sounds? Well, I grew up in Connecticut, kind of in the suburban countryside, and I I was always going outside behind my house into the meadow and by the river and listening to sounds. I was always interested in music and also um, natural world and trying to figure out how to connect them. So, David, everyone hears the sounds of nature walking through the woods, but not everyone hears music like you do. Uh, One example is a little experiment you did with a very thrush song. Um, Let's play the thrush song as you would hear it in the forest. And then you took that song and slowed it way down. Wow. Who would have known? What did you take away from this little experiment? I mean, this is one of the, the most surprising examples of taking a, a bird song in its real speed and, and slowing it down kind of into the human realm of hearing. And you hear what's already in there and you hear what the birds are getting. And you kind of grasp how this song can mean so much to the, to these, uh, to the female viris who hear it. You know, birds hear five times faster than we do. The viri on its own is going... And this is a kind of somewhat familiar but strange sound you hear in the woods. So bring it into the human realm, bring the pitch down. This song is an amazing example of, of the music contained in that little phrase. It really sounds like a jazz trumpet phrase. It's got all the qualities of a good jazz phrase. It's got not only a form and structure, but a real um, quality of performance and, and emotion and verve to it somehow. Like, you know, if you were playing that in, in, in a lesson with your teacher, they'd say, yeah, you've got it. You've got it figured out. Uh-huh. You know, I always thought that John Coltrane got his riffs from the wood thrush. Uh, what did he say to that? He probably did. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you have a new record out. It's called the Cicada Dream Band. And there are sounds from cicadas, crickets, whales. But you also have some other musicians on this. How does playing with creatures change when you're joined by other human musicians? Well, this album came out of the concerts we did when the cicadas were, were emerging last year. 2013 in the New York uh, metropolitan area and uh, every 17 years this happened I'd heard that 17 years before Pauline Oliveros, the famous uh, experimental composer had 
done a whole festival of cicadas. So I said, let's do it again. So we, we performed in New York City and in, in some other places. And uh, in the record, we ended up with Pauline playing this kind of digital accordion called a V accordion, along with Timothy Hill, who's an overtone singer. And he, he specializes in this kind of singing. You can sing more than one note at the same time, kind of like birds and insects can do. And so we formed this group. And so we kind of based the music, um, you know, not so didactically like some of my other records have done, but really kind of use it as part of the mix. So we were playing live. I was playing clarinets and also computer playing some of these sounds. And we were kind of improvising together to form music around uh, the whole possibility that all these sounds are out there in the natural world. And uh, what I hope in this whole process is that my own music and the music of my collaborators human and from other species has changed by the encounter like it leads to something new that we couldn't do on our own you've played with different kinds of creatures birds whales cicadas even so talk about the similarities and differences of playing with those different animals well the thing is with playing with insects then you are one sound in the midst of millions it's very humbling to make a little noise and around you you hear so many individuals all together forming this kind of collective musical composition where everyone's doing their own little part and somehow it fits together and although at first it might sound like noise when you paid closer attention to it you realize there's a lot of organization going on there with birds you get a sense you're you're, you're connecting to an individual. An individual is doing something and you're responding to it. And of course, it's one thing to take the song, slow it down, make it a sound that you interact with, like in a studio or in a concert where you're playing the recording. That's kind of easy in a way. What's more challenging and kind of daring and surprising is to do it in the wild where you don't know what's going to happen. Like last year, I was out in Berlin in in late spring playing with nightingales in these parks. Berlin is somehow full of nightingales and they just sing very intensely in the middle of the night. So how did the nightingales respond to your clarinet? They, they kind of keep jamming with you. Scientists have told us there's three ways the nightingale will respond to a sound played to it. They will alternate. They'll let you do your sound, then they'll do something. Or they could try and compete with you and jam what you're doing. When alternating, it's a more peaceful sense of, okay, you've got your space, I've got mine. When they're kind of interrupting you constantly. It's more like a competitive situation. They're trying to define their territories against yours. And then finally, the, the most superior top nightingales just ignore what you do and just maybe they sing, maybe they don't. They couldn't care less. And this is similar to, say, human jazz musicians. These three types of musicians you will easily meet on stage. Any jazz musician would confirm that. Well, maybe the jammers are trying to teach you how to play the clarinet a little better. I'd say sometimes, you know, there's a, a recent scientific study written by these scientists in Berlin saying that, uh, you know, the nightingales are either playing rhythmic clicks like or whistle songs. But occasionally they make this sound, which the scientists describe as an ugly sound, like but I listened to it, and all the other musicians we had out there playing with the nightingales, it just sounded like a, a cool, bent blue note, like a meh, meh. And whenever it did it, everyone would smile and laugh because it sounded so cool. And it was interesting. The scientists just thought it was unmusical. And all the musicians said it was very musical. So birds like uh, half notes, huh? 
they like blue notes, like in between the major and minor, like we all do. These in-between things you can't quite define. And just like the Viri song has this swinging bluesy quality. You know, it's a surprising ending, but it's just the perfect ending. And, uh, you know, every animal that sings is really a, a world in itself. They all have their own aesthetic sense, something Charles Darwin talked about. Like he wrote in Descent of Man, birds have a natural aesthetic sense. They appreciate beauty. That's why they've evolved beautiful feathers and beautiful songs. People often forget that. It's not a very common subject to study in biology, the aesthetics of evolution. But I'm happy to say more and more scientists are starting to take this more seriously. A long time ago, Beatrice Harrison went out with her cello to play with the Nightingales. What did you think of her music? Well, what's so fascinating about that story is this is the first outdoor radio broadcast ever made. So it was a really big deal for the BBC to do this in the 1920s. And they repeated it every year up until World War II. It was a very famous and popular program. And she was confirming just what I was saying, that you, know, you can play any sound, the Nightingales will join in. Let's listen to a little bit of Beatrice Harrison. To, to listen to this, you have to really put yourself back in the mood of the 1920s when a sound just like that, just as scratchy, was heard as being incredibly realistic, incredibly unique, something utterly new, like a sound recorded outdoors mixing humanity and nature. No one had heard anything like that before hearing this. So you just have to say, wow, listen to this. Humans can reach across to nature playing a human instrument the birds respond and more than that this broadcast on short waves heard all over the world uh, david what do you learn about nature or at least the creatures you play with when you do this you learn that there is music in nature it's not just a human imposition it's this aspect of evolution that charles darwin was well aware of but today it's hard to find a biology textbook that admits that evolution creates a lot of weird cool beautiful stuff you know i wrote a book called survival of the beautiful just dealing with this aspect of uh, evolution that evolution produces all this this uh, beauty which is amazing but you can't always explain it away with some practical purpose. And I think this is a, has profound implications for how we understand nature. The way so many animals communicate is uh, in, in a way much more like music than like language. They repeat the same phrases over and over and over again. So they're not just saying some specific message like, hey, I'm here, I'm hungry, or look at me. They're, they're, they need to say this with a with the phrases that are shaped and formed. And you find that in... Uh, you know, all kinds of animal sounds, even in these long songs of humpback whales, the complete song of which takes about 20 minutes to sing. You know, already in the 1970s, Katie Payne was writing that these songs have a structure and they tend to, they could, you could say they have a sense of rhyme. At the end of a long phrase, they come to the same sound and then they'll play, sing something different and then they'll come to the same ending sound like a at the end of a long phrase. Okay, you listen to the animals and you, you play along. So to what extent do they listen? Well, that's a good question. We can study the hearing apparatus of different animals so we know what kinds of frequencies they hear. But it's harder to know what's going on in their minds. In birds have been the most studied in this regard. And you can tell what goes on inside the brain of a songbird. Certain areas light up when certain sounds are played or sung. They do respond to certain kinds of things. What's so fascinating with insects is many of them make sounds they can't even hear. Why, why, why does that happen? And the answer is? We don't know. 
much of this is just not known. The, the notion that animals are making music has been understood by humans for thousands of years. Musicians have thought about it. Scientists have thought about it, but they debate whether it's a useful way to think about nature in a scientific way. Is it just a human subjective imposition or is it a useful way to analyze that? Let's listen to another clip now. This is from your record, Whale Music. The tune is called Never Satisfied. What was it like uh, playing with the whales? Where were you? Uh, when was it? How long did it go on? It's not so easy to play clarinet along with humpback whales. One reason is that they are underwater and I was sitting on a boat wearing headphones. You can't tell where the sound is underwater. There's no sense of space. It's just everywhere sort of around. It's either louder, nearer, or quieter, further. And so this whale was kind of right under the boat. You could almost hear him without the headphones at all. And uh, what's interesting about humpback whales is they're always changing their song, always listening for new sounds. And it makes it interesting to play with them because sometimes, only sometimes, they respond to what I'm doing. I have to say I've done this for many hours, and most of the time the whales seem to ignore me. You know, no surprise. But in this one example I showed you, you can really hear that as the clarinet plays a steady note, then the whale actually tries to go, he tries to sing in a more steady way than he usually does. Whales don't usually sing horizontal, steady sounds. They're usually more going, they go up and down like that. And so this is a kind of surprising moment where the whale showed some interest. And so at that moment, you feel like, oh, maybe something's going on here. Maybe maybe there's a sense of getting through to another species through music. David Rothenberg is a musician, author, and professor of music and philosophy at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Thanks so much, Professor, for taking this time. Thanks a lot. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, Lauren Hinkle, Jake Lucas, and Jennifer Marquis are all part of our team. Our show was engineered by James Kerwood. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International